We are reading from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 to 17. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is God's word. You may be seated. So we continue in our series, and we're going to be looking at the verses that John just read for us. And uh, this section of Hebrews describes the Christian life as a race. Not a sprint, but a marathon. A race that is long. Uh, For some of us, it may be longer than for others. But some of us have come to faith later in life, and so the race has just begun. Uh, Races are not easy. Uh, We will not speak in too many athletic terms this morning, but races are often filled with hazards, depending on the type of race that you're running. Uh, So I've broken this passage into three sections, and I've titled this talk, Run Hard, Run Together, and Run Against. Nice little three-point. You see how I did that? It's pretty, pretty. We go to school for this kind of stuff. I mean, it didn't come free for me to figure out a title like that. But as always, we need to be reminded of who was hearing this originally. It was a small church in an occupied area that was occupied by Rome, and they were Jewish Christians, and they were on the threshold of enduring great persecution for their faith. The persecution had begun. They'd had their property seized. Some of them had already been put into prison. They had been publicly ridiculed. And very shortly, they were going to be asked to deny their Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And many of them would be put to death for their faith. And they had not lost their identity as Jews, but they had been called away from Judaism to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was a great temptation to go back. And and the reason why this is so important to be reminded of is because the writer of Hebrews uses the Old Testament to make his points. And he does this over and over and over again. And, And so often for us, the Old Testament allusions are lost because we're much less familiar with the Old Testament than the original hearers of this letter would have been. And so when the writer hints at or draws attention to an Old Testament passage, the the hearers of this letter would have immediately known about which he was speaking. The context of a single verse would have been brought to their minds and they would have remembered the context and and probably remembered the surrounding verses 
uh, from that context, whereas we have to do a little bit more work to try to get that understanding so that we can get where they're coming from and where they're going to. And so this section, which was not written in a vacuum, it was written connected to what had come before and it's connected to what comes after that, that the writer quotes one verse from a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 35. And, and I've got to confess that at the beginning of the week, if you had said, Dave, even though I've preached through Isaiah in the last couple of years, what's the context of Isaiah 35, I would have looked at you like this. I have no idea. Which is a tremendous shame on me, but for them, one verse out of that context would have brought forward the entire section. And as I mentioned earlier, this, this chapter, Isaiah 35, is, is called the greatest and most beautiful salvation poem in all of the Old Testament. And so he's writing to Christians who are Jewish, who are running the race, and he is charging them to stay on course. And so he says, run hard and run together and run against certain things. And so he starts this section by quoting Isaiah 35, and I'm warning you now, we need to turn there. So Isaiah's back. So look toward the front part of your Bible, not the very beginning, but the middle front. But let me reread verse 12, because this is the quote from Isaiah 35. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. That's a, that's a great verse, isn't it? And it can be very easily taken out of context. Uh, I don't want to draw attention to anybody here, but there are people in the room who have run marathons and completed them. I don't understand it. I don't recommend it. But there are people in the room who have done it. And I'm sure halfway through the race, if somebody were to shout out, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, it would make a tremendous amount of sense to them where it may be lost on me. But it comes in verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 35, and I'd like you to turn there, and I want to give you a little bit of the context. Uh, the short context, I won't go through the whole thing, but in Isaiah chapter 34, what we have is a chapter of judgment against the disbelieving nations. I'd love to take the time to read the entire chapter to you, but Isaiah 34, uh, God comes down and says all the things that are going to be brought against the people who have challenged God's authority and challenged the authority of his people. And, and the indictment that's going to be brought against them is terrible and it's it's grim, and, and I commend this chapter to you and, and ask you to read it this week if you want to get more of the context of chapter 35. But then chapter 35 follows right on the heels of chapter 34, and it's a, a poem, if you will, written to the people of God, in particular the faithful people of God who are going to remain faithful and true throughout the entirety of their lives. 
In other words, those who are running the race and those who are going to complete the race. And, and God is giving them, if you will, praise and also commendation and, and telling them to stay the course because the race is worth running and it is worth completing. And so in verse 3, we have this word, strengthen the weak hands and make firm your feeble knees. Because the race is worth running. And the race is worth completing. And I want you to stay on course even though the challenges on either side of you are extraordinarily difficult. And they are because you are a foreigner in a foreign land. They are there to trip you up. And they are there to keep you from completing the race and the course. And so in verse 10, we, we have these wonderful words, and I really want you to pay attention to verse 10. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That's the picture of why I want you to run the race. And that's the picture of why I want you to complete the course because this is what's waiting for you. So when the writer of Hebrews tells the people, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weakened knees, those hearers would have understood why. They would have understood that there is coming a day when they are going to enter the presence of God singing and rejoicing and where sorrow and sighing have fled away. Let me just read a few more of the verses from this tremendous passage. Verse 8, And a highway shall be there, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way, even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. I love that verse. It's the only place in the Bible where the path that true believers are on is called the highway of holiness. The writer of Hebrews picks this up again in the text that we're talking about. In chapter 12, and that's why I can confidently say he's bringing forward the whole context of Isaiah chapter 35 when he just quotes that, lift up your sagging hands and weaken your shaky knees. He talks about holiness and its importance, but he says the highway of holiness, if you belong to God, Though you are a fool, you will not stray from it. But there is a charge in Hebrews to run hard, to stay on course, to not be sidetracked, to not be delayed, to not be encumbered by sin, and so on and so forth. So turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 12. 
Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This is another verse that Jesus quoted when he healed some of the blind and the lame. He quoted Isaiah 35 on a number of different occasions. But the two first verses are just telling these people and us that you are on the course. You know where it is that you are going. You know what waits for you when you get there. But you need to run hard. You need to strengthen yourself along the way. Now, this would be a great time for a pep talk and and one of those pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of thing. But I I really don't want to do that because there is a tension here. You see, it was God who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And it was God who put us on the course. And it is by God's strength that we will finish the race, not our own. And it will be God who meets us at the finish line. And the earlier parts of chapter 12 tell us that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, including the Lord Jesus Christ, and more importantly, who will see us to the end. But there is a responsibility on us that one step needs to go in front of the others. That we are to finish the course that we started out on and see ourselves to the end. Another example, I've, I've found myself telling stories in Hebrews more than I normally do, but this week my wife watched and then consequently I watched the Iron Man 2022. Uh, another thing I do not understand. And, and there were great snippets about the great racers who were anticipated to be in the top five, both men and women. And then there were side by sidebar stories that, that had much more uh, emotion surrounding them. There was a Down syndrome young man who was the first to have completed the Iron Man in its entirety. There, were, there was a mother whose daughter was unable to walk because she was handicapped, who was pushed by her mother in a stroller throughout the entirety of the course. There was um, a young woman who had suffered a spinal cord injury, and the only way she could complete the course was in one of those three-wheeled bicycles. And and, uh, while I don't understand the race, what I know is that everyone who participated was on a course that they did not establish. And when everyone reached the end, whether they were the victor or finished 17 hours later, all the sighs and the weak knees were gone. And the response was the same. It was joy to have completed the course. And, and so there was a responsibility. One of the mantras of the, of the young Down syndrome boy was three more cones. There were cones in the middle of the street and he was running after, the, after dark, you know. Just three more cones. 
there was a responsibility for him to continue the course if he was going to complete it. And so we are to run hard. There is a responsibility, even though it is not our strength in which we run. And it's a tension, and it's inexplicable, but it's real. So when we wake up in the morning, we must acknowledge that we are in a race, and that on both sides of the course, everything is hostile. And everything would be there to stop us, to drag us down, to keep us from finishing the course. But if we keep our eyes on what Christ has set before us, our eternity with him in glory then we must run hard. The next two verses, verses 14 and 15, have a slightly different uh, change of tone. It's not a new tone in the book of Hebrews, as I'll point out to you in a moment. But let me just reread those. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness. There's that highway to holiness idea again without which one, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fall, fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. It's a shift in that all of a sudden the writer says, I want to remind you that you are running this race together. That it is not just an isolated incident that you are the solo runner, whether you be at the rear or at the front, that you are running in the company of other saints. And so he's being very prescriptive here. How is it that we are going to stay on track? How is it that we are not going to be waylaid? How is it that we are not going to find ourselves in trouble stopping or taking a side route and all the rest of this? He says, you are to run the race together. Now, this isn't a new idea. Let me just read a couple of passages from Hebrews where this idea has come out before. In chapter 13, the writer has said, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And in chapter 4, he says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And then in chapter 6, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you fail to reach it. There's a corporate nature to this rest. But in these two verses, he emphasizes a couple of things. He emphasizes peace and holiness, grace and the lack of bitterness. These are four things that we are to encourage each other toward and also avoid and to help each other avoid. Now, I am really happy to say what I'm about to say, and I mean this as sincerely as anything that I have ever said from this pulpit. This is the most peaceful, gracious, bitter-free 
congregation I have ever been a part of. And that is by God's good grace and mercy. But it says in verse 14, you are to strive for peace with everyone. What that means is that peace does not come accidentally. There is to be an effort on the part of those who are in the race together to strive for peace and unity. That's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? It's kind of an oxymoron. Strive for peace. I mean, it doesn't make sense. Now, this would be a great text to encourage a congregation that was going through rough times. And, and I hope someday a preacher uses it correctly and rightly. Thankfully, it doesn't need to apply here. But by the same token, the striving for peace should not be ignored merely because it happens to rest in our midst. Because there is a day when it may not be there. It also says, and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness is that concept of being set apart for something different. Untainted, unencumbered by everything around us that would keep us from being holy. God has put us on the course. He has put us on the track. He knows where we are headed. We should have the prize in mind, but everything around us is there to distract us and keep us from that course. And we are charged to collectively encourage and help each other in that endeavor. Now, does that mean that we become the holiness police? It does not. But there may be times and occasions when it is a moment of counsel or to see opportunity to point out something in someone else's life where you have that kind of relationship to say, holiness perhaps is escaping you. Or it's the opportunity for self-examination for ourselves. Am I as set apart as I should be in the race that God has set before me. And he fails to obtain the grace of God. Grace is a, is a word that, you know, it, it means unmerited favor. And we are to be about encouraging each other daily of what God has done for us through Christ so that that will help us stay on course. And we are to be those who are extending grace to others. A little bit trickier. We love the doctrine of grace, but being graceful toward each other can often be much more challenging, you see. A difference of opinion. Uh, um, a, a word that was said or misunderstood. Uh, uh, a word that may not have been as graceful as it could or should have been, can often cause a problem between an individual or groups of individuals, and it can cause a problem within the church. And so I found myself asking the question, am I as grace 
filled as I should be. And if I have been wounded, am I grace-filled enough to go resolve the issue, or do I walk away harboring that which can become the root of bitterness? You see, that is often what happens, isn't it? Something is said intentionally or unintentionally, and we walk away and we carry that with us, and we're not grace-filled enough to resolve the question or the issue. And the next thing you know, I'm bitter at that individual. And the potential for strife, the potential for dissension arises. And then my holiness is compromised. And my peace is out the window. And everything that God says should be a part of our togetherness is compromised because I have failed to keep my eye on the ball. This is what Isaiah 35 calls the highway of holiness. It, it sounds so cheap in English. It sounds much better in Hebrew. But the point is, we are in this together, and our togetherness should be not only picking up those who have stumbled along the way, but there should be peace and grace, and bitterness should be the furthest thing from those who are helping each other along the course God has set us on, you see. So two tremendous verses, and then the last two verses are things that we are to run against. And, and they seem, they can seem to us a slightly out of place. But having said that, imagine someone who calls themselves a believer who is running the race but now no longer cares about peace and no longer cares about grace and the seeds of bitterness have crept in on them. What does that person look like? Now, I don't want you to look around at each other. That's not the point of the exercise. But what you have is a singularly self-absorbed individual who cares for nothing but their own desires. They're no longer running the race that Christ has set before them. They're no longer running together. All that they care is feeding their own appetites. And the example here is given to us of Esau. Now, I, I would love to take the time to run us back to the book of Genesis and, and plow through the story of Esau. But Esau was a man of passions. He was a man of passions. And he was singularly self-absorbed. He ended up marrying a woman out of his faith, and that was called immorality sexual immorality, and, and he was so driven by his physical needs and his physical wants that he sold his birthright for a bowl of lentil soup. Now, now it's a fascinating story because for a brief moment, I don't know that I've ever been that hungry, really and truly, I'm being serious. Some of you have, beyond a shadow of a doubt. But I mean, like really on the verge of dying 
from hunger or thinking that you're dying of hunger, that you would sell something to get a bowl of lentil soup. Esau thought he was that hungry. He really wasn't that hungry. But here's the thing we need to keep in mind. The birthright that Esau had was given to him by God through his father. And and it was the end goal. It was the prize for which he was running. Just like we are running for the presence of Christ. And Esau thought so little of that prize that he said, my needs now this second are greater than what God has promised me. And so I will sell what I cannot see for what I can see right now. But isn't that what the race looks like, you see? The prize is way out there, and we cannot see it. The preacher talks about heaven, and he talks about the presence of Christ, and he talks about a world without end where sin no longer exists. But I got needs and wants now. And on a daily basis, I am tempted and I do trade my birthright to meet my needs and my wants now. And that, that's Esau. And, and so that the one who is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, for you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, now, friends, I want to paint this picture as accurately as I can. Because, of course, when his belly was full, what did he want? He wanted his birthright back. He wanted them both. He wanted the instant gratification and then he wanted the prize. But, but here's the picture, and this is what the language indicates here. He was so entangled by his personal drives that he was unable to repent. He was so encumbered by sin that even though he thought he wanted to repent and he wept over the fact that his inheritance was gone, he was unable to bring himself to repent. And there are those like that who are so selfish, who are so driven by passions, who are so driven by their perceived needs and wants now that even though that what they, they know that what they have given up is greater than what they have gained, they can't bring themselves to the humility to say, God, I have sacrificed all. And this is Esau. And this is why the writer 
in chapters one, in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, says, don't allow the sin which so easily entangles you take you off course. Imminently, imminently practical. Imminently practical. But thankfully, according to Isaiah 35, even though I'm a fool, if I keep my eyes on the author and perfecter of my faith, I will find myself in the presence of Christ at the end. But I am to run hard, and we are to run together, and we are to run against the types of things that are being spoken of here about Esau. And now listen again to Isaiah 35.10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That's why we run hard. We run together and we run against. To the glory of Christ, let's pray. Father, um, we are on the course and there is everything against us in the sense that um, we are in a hostile world and everything around us is set to trip us up. And quite frankly, the sin which so easily entangles is enticing. And we believe we need it to survive. And instant gratification is always in front of us. But we are to run hard and to run together and to run against. I praise you and thank you that we have a collective group of people who love you, who are devoted to peace and grace, who shun bitterness. But when these temptations come, may we flee from them to our Savior and Lord, the author and perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.